Hello, everyone, and welcome to Swarm AI for Decentralized Clinical Research. We are delighted to be presenting this exciting panel session at the Convi 2X Symposium 2021. I am Maria Palombini, and I lead the healthcare and life sciences practice at the IEEE Standards Association. So for those of you who are not familiar with the IEEE, and yes, it is pronounced IEEE, it's the Institute for Electronic and Electrical Engineers. Um, we have a global organization. We have more than 400,000 members globally. Uh, we do 1,900 plus conferences, 47, almost 47 technical societies and councils. I'm sure at some point, somewhere you maybe have run into us or at one point we're even a member um, as you go through your technical engineering um, lifetime. But we live and all our work follows a core mission, advancing technology for humanity. Um, whether we do standards, uh, the work we look at in technologies, we're always looking at how we can actually improve the outcomes for all individuals, all living things on this planet. So naturally, the healthcare and life sciences practice, which is part of the Standards Association, really looks at working with global volunteers all different types of expertise from clinicians to technologists to regulators to researchers on how these new technologies and applications can improve the quality standard of life, being able to support innovation in order to give universal, sustainable, equitable access of care to all while protecting their right to privacy, their right to access their data and what they might have be. So in the world that we live in through open standardized means, we're trying to make the process seamless and also helpful for better outcomes. So just a little bit about what we do real short, there's multiple paths to standards at the IEEE Standards Association. A lot of the work we do in healthcare life sciences sits in industry connections, where we pretty much incubate ideas that we think may become standards or could solve a challenge. We bring this open collaborative platform to really look at these ideas. And then when they start to actually percolate and get some substance, they graduate, like we say, into standardization projects. As you all may be our most famous standard, is 802.11 Wi-Fi protocol, which everyone uses universally on their Wi-Fi devices. But we have plenty others in the healthcare sector, like the 11073, which is for um, communication nomenclatures in personal communication devices, uh, health devices, which is even noted in FDA's um, CDRH uh, policy. And then we do conformity assessment, registries, and all things of the like. <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about swarm AI. And if, you know, when we think the first thing I thought about when I thought about swarm, I thought about beehives, but conceptually it's almost the same thing, right? We think about the way bees swarm, but this is a little bit smarter. So I'm just took a quick quote, you know, as we all know in the world of blockchain and quantum, everybody has a definition. So I'm sharing one with you that I found. Um, and it's simply, you know, artificial swarm intelligence or simply swarm AI, right? Uh, brings human groups into emergent systems to moderate algorithms model, uh, modeled on biological swarms and so forth. But today we're really gonna get to the application. What can it do for clinical research and what makes it so different and opportunistic yet there's some challenges and questions we still need to get through. So I want you to think about some of these things as we go through this great panel today. You know, we, we hear a lot about federated machine learning, but what's the difference between federated and swarm learning? Um, and then there's obviously some considerations about technical, there's policy application, we're, trans we're transferring significant amounts of data, not only within one geographical region, what happens when we try to push the bounds beyond that one particular border? Right, And then we want to look at the impact of swarm AI on drug development, whether it's in clinical research at the R&D level, is it in the clinical trial process, there's plenty of other areas we can look at. And then what are the necessary steps to drive that wider understanding and the acceptance and trusted application of it. So I am very delighted to introduce our panel. <clears throat> Obviously, I'm your moderator today, but the experts are here with you to talk about it. So first we have um, Dr. Joachim Schultz. He is the Director of Systems Medicine at the German Center for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Bonn, Germany. Um, he is uh, <clears throat> the founding director of the Precise Platform for Single Cell Genomics and Epigenomics at the DZNE. And, and he is the coordinator of the German DFG-funded NGS Competence Center in Germany. He contributes his expertise to multiple EU consortia. He's leading several programs on applying single cell technologies memory-driven computing, and swarm learning to patients with Alzheimer's disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, like we say, lung cancer, or HIV. 
So welcome, Yakum. <clears throat> then next with us, we have Dr. Vikram Shetty, all the way from Singapore. Um, he's the medical affairs director at AstraZeneca. Um, he's a trained medical oncologist and after years of clinical practice moved to pharmaceutical within 15 years in pharmaceutical regional global roles across various therapies areas, including oncology, hematology, CVRM and respiratory. He's worked at many multinational companies such as Celgene, BM, BMS and others. He, as the medical director, he leads a team that works towards medical affairs and clinical trials. He has led the development of the digital healthcare and genomic strategy for AstraZeneca in Singapore. Welcome, Dr. Shetty. And finally, and definitely not least, we have Krishna Prasad Shastri. Prasad is Distinguished Technologist at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, HP. Prasad is responsible for driving strategic programs and advanced development in emerging technologies like AI or artificial intelligence, machine learning, edge computing, and our very happy topic, blockchain. Uh, in the past six years in, at India ADC, Prasad has led several research and development activities in the areas of big data, in-storage computing, software accelerators, and memory-driven computing. Um, he's focused on developing solutions for decentralized machine learning, and AI uh, ML lifecycle management. Um, in addition to co-inventing swarm learning uh, technology, Prasad is overseeing its application in the healthcare field. So as you can see, we have a very knowledgeable panel, uh, very excited to be here. And I would like to ask Dr. Schultz to kick it off with his presentation. So thank you very much, Maria, <clears throat> also for the nice introduction and also the invitation. It's a real pleasure to share our knowledge and also our thought processes about swarm learning, um, which we were delighted to collaborate uh, with Prasad and his team at uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise over the last year. Um, so I bring basically the medical part in here. So, you know, the idea why we think this is an important step forwards in uh, AI. And as I over uh, wrote this year with the title Swarm Learning for Precision Medicine, this is exactly our goal. Uh, we're convinced that you need to um, basically include artificial intelligence in the development of new diagnostics and therapies in the future if we want to really go towards precision medicine. There's no way around. One simple reason is we're uh, basically taking new data spaces like genomics, uh, other omics data that um, are just not readable by us, our own senses. So we need computers, algorithms, and certainly artificial intelligence. Now, in the, in the classical way, in, in you know, medical research, both basic as well as clinically applied, what you basically have is, is your data in an institution, a hospital, um, a large clinic. Um, and you see that I just pushed a, a very nice border around. Usually this is one area where you're not really sharing your data with anybody outside. So you have it all within. Yeah? And it's this the starting point when we do artificial intelligence, we make local models. Yeah? But there's a couple of problems with local models, particularly in, in, in medicine, because not a single institution is large enough to have enough data. Yeah? So we have uh, locally very often two small data sets. Um, they're nice to see a first indication that there might be something a certain data space to be used for AI, but for really making diagnostic tests or, or, or similar things, it's just too small. In many areas in the world, so certainly in my country, there's very often an attitude that this is my data. Um, it's not negatively seen because if you think about patient-physician privilege, that's exactly what the doctor has to do. He has to protect the data from the outside. He can share the insights, but not the data. And then we have, of course, things like, this is my model, I don't want to share that, or I, I don't want to use another one. And in areas like in the European Union, um, we have very strong uh, data privacy laws uh, like the GDPR, but this is also in other countries like HIPAA in the US and so on. So the question, of course, is, you know, what can we do to make AI work? Because we all know that we need more access to more data. And of course, the, the classical way over the last 10 to 15 years, also in the medical field, was more or less going central. Central AI, you know, you push the data at one certain uh, area. You take now all institutions, hospitals, clinics, and you push them all into one area. Um, that sounds from an, a purely computational data science um, viewpoint as, as the ideal situation um, in the first place, because if you have all the data at one place, you can run much easier AI algorithms. 
but it comes with other um, disadvantages. And uh, a major one in the medical field is that we really have difficulty to share the raw data. Yeah, out of legal reasons, but also out of traditional reasons. Yeah, as I said, uh, patient-physician uh, privilege is an important aspect of medicine, and this is basically really against that principle, which is a very old one. So there's many open questions and hurdles. You know, are we ready to share? Very often, we need lengthy contracts to really figure that out, and then even then, it's not so easy. Um, can we agree on the shared data usage? Yeah. So once you have them there, you have duplicated them already. The data. And then are we using it only for the first question or can we use it for other things? This is very difficult to deal with also, uh, not, not from the technical viewpoint, but basically from the interest and from the financial and legal points. Then the other question is, can we actually afford to give data away? Because in, in these regulations, um, if a patient basically retracts his, his agreement, uh, then you have to take all the data back. And we all know once you duplicate data, this is almost impossible. Um, and then it costs more. You duplicate the data. Sometimes you even do more than duplication. You have to transfer data. And the data we produce in medicine is getting so big that, you know, for example, in Germany, it would not be possible to transfer all the neuroimaging um, pictures that are um, produced on a, on a single day in, in, in a time that it's there at least at the next day. So we would have, you know, uh, basically data traffic jams very quickly. Now, that's when we, for ourselves, my institution, the DZNE, has 10 sites in Germany. So for us, it, it, it was clear that we're searching for solutions that we can keep the data where they are produced in the different 10 sites, but we can somehow learn together. So we had a catalog of what we need. And um, we met basically last year, the team at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and then started to work together because we had very, uh, very similar ideas. Yeah. <clears throat> One last thing I would like to mention to this model is really, if you take medical traditions, open and centralized data is just detrimentally against them. So, And to work against the field is usually not very good. So we need some solutions that are basically living with the field's traditions. And this is when we, um, when we basically have shown med with medical data, with real medical data last year, that the concept that um, Passat will technically show us in a second that this also from the from the medical principle is really the one that we should go forward. So now in instead of having them centrally and also uh, in contrast to federated, we have equal partners. So here could be clinics or institutions. They keep their data where they are and they share only the insights. So the, the, the results of the local learning that have has been done. And that's the important aspect. Two major points. There's not a central custodian and that's important for medicine. I'm a medical doctor by training and I have been in medicine for a long time. It's very important that we're not having an institution, an organization or anything that is ruling even the parameter space. Uh, it will be much easier in medicine if we have equal partners and they basically decide together what is being done and the technical solution you will hear in a second. So it's from this part is, is very important. And we have, of course, much less data that is somewhere transferred because this parameter sharing is, is very little uh, transfer of information. And we were lucky enough um, that this has been uh, seen by the editors of Nature as also being something looking forward and have been published um, a paper about swarm in Nature in June of this year. My summary arises a little bit, you know, from my perspective, what's the way forward to collaborative precision medicine? So the first thing, of course, you have to show that it works. So that's what we did with the COVID-19 um, community and also with the community that works on leukemias and tuberculosis. And what we use is basically blood samples from patients where we had um, extracted the so-called transcripts. So this is, uh, these are uh, biomolecules that are transcribed from the genome. And there's thousands of different ones in the blood, and you can use that as a new data space to identify differences between different patients and their diseases. And what we could clearly show is that we can identify the patients with leukemias and with tuberculosis and with COVID-19 very easily by this. And the swarm learning aspect was always giving us better results than if we would have learned in isolation at different places. So what we have now is a, is a machine learning or AI framework that is decentral and privacy preserving technology will come. Um, you can really build this across centers, hospitals, and institutions. We have even uh, particularly shown that for COVID-19, where we really 
kept them from the cities where they are in, and did not even simulate anything. And then you can also see the advantages of, of swarm learning even beyond uh, central solutions and um, federated solutions. Um, what's what from my perspective uh, is important is that um, we should not think that can be done easily now with all clinical data because clinical data sometimes are not as good as we would like to see them. So my 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 forward thinking is we really have to first find what are excellent data and blood transcriptomes is a highly standardized data space. So this is uh, these kind of data spaces where we have more idea about their qualities probably the first way forward. And then it's also nice we can do that across disciplines or within disciplines. So you could say like we're not only taking infectious disease people, but we can go beyond disciplines. And sometimes this is an important aspect in medicine as well. And you can imagine that we already have engaged in new projects. And with this, I would like to stop here and um, give uh, some time also to my colleagues to talk about other aspects of this approach. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Schultz, for sharing that uh, first intro view into potential applications and already the great work you guys are doing with it. So at this time, I'd like to ask um, Dr. Shetty to please talk about a little bit from the pharmaceutical perspective on potentially the impact of Swarm AI. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you for the very kind introduction. And I'm very excited because it's not often that I get an opportunity to speak to engineers. So I'm Dr. Vikram Shetty, and I've been working in the pharmaceutical industry for over a decade and a half. And I'm going to give you a bit of a clinical perspective in learning. And uh, some of this is going to overlap with Dr. Joachim's presentation. So I hope you'll bear through with me through that. So what's the evolution of big in healthcare data, right? So individually, first, we had institutional data, which stood in individual institutions, right? And irrespective of how large that institution was, there was a problem that when you're talking about rare diseases, or even when you're talking about common diseases, which express themselves in very different genomic patterns, something I will go into later, there isn't an ability to get all of that data together to make meaningful learning. Uh, also, these small data sets, there has an, an ability to find rare data, and data sets even in the same institution may not be linked. For example, some institutions may be at separate geographical sites or within departments like Dr. Joachim has mentioned. Maybe there is a patient outcomes and a patient's genomics data, which is not linked to their radiological data. So the, these problems always have traditionally existed in the pharmaceutical industry. Then we had the era where we had the EHR come in. So EHR could get you a lot of analytics on outcome and hospitalization. And what happened with EHR is, especially at a country level, you get a little bit of uniformity on how the data is stored and managed. So that allows you an ability to have a richer data and more uh, yieldable data. So you can get a lot more readings from that. But there is very minimal real-world data. And what's been happening in parallel is there is the internet of things. There has been a big uh, deal or that has been coming on wearable technology. So imagine having a diabetes patient and we treated them as a diabetes patient, but then having them go outside of the hospital and over a year even give us data on how much exercise they did, what were the calories they consumed, and that kind of contributes larger to the data. But on the fourth column, you'll see that there is looking inwards, there is also a lot of genomics mapping. And that's a new thing that we've been working on, but there's an immense amount of data. But genomic signals can be sparse, right? You can have a wealth of number of genes that you're looking at. But if you're looking at a point mutation, which is basically only one protein, which is different from the others, it's going to be very difficult to find large clusters of patients in the same geographical area. So this has been some of our problems managing that uh, large data and how do we kind of collaborate between the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare mm -hmm. providers, whether they're institutions or governments on the outside, which is where we've been working with Prasad's team and bringing over the swarm learning perspective. So what are the applications of machine learning? Okay, so we've, we've applied machine learning and there are a lot of vendors out there, uh, USFDA approved and various health agency approved artificial intelligence for radiology, pathology, genomics, and drug delivery. Now, all of this becomes more meaningful as you're aware, the larger set of data if we were to present to it and have enough data to train this through. 
But here's where our challenge really comes in, okay? I'm gonna illustrate this for you with an example. Let, let me explain to you why we think we need big data, right? So X-rays are one of the most common radiology uh, tests that are carried out globally, right? A lot of us, almost all of us have had an X-ray at some point or the other. Uh, imagine I wanted to diagnose lung cancer out of X-rays. Now we have something known as an IPN, which is an incidental pulmonary nodule, which is like, imagine finding a nodule on an X-ray. Only 0.1% of all X-rays have an IPN. Of all the IPN, and that was X-ray, only 5.2% of those IPNs on a CT scan have a lung cancer. And on an X-ray, the incidence is even lower. And this has not been very formally declared in publications, et cetera. But from our extrapolation to diagnose one lung cancer, we need about 30,000 X-rays. So, in, and if you go beyond that, if you want to train an AI algorithm to have a number of X-rays, you need to have a number of X-rays in order for it to have an algorithm which produces something meaningful at the end of it. So you can understand from a, even for something which is as plebeian and commonplace as X-ray, when you're looking at something which is by no means in an oncology term, maybe the number one cancer in most countries, number two in some of the others, we still need a large amount of data. And in our experience, you can't find this in one hospital. You have to have multiple hospitals, sometimes even in many countries. Now I'm going to turn the microscope a little around and I'm going to look at that one cancer, right? So imagine you did all of this and you found that cancer. Now cancer is, uh, lung cancer is not one disease, right? It's a disease with a lot of phenotypes in it and a lot of genotypes, right? Yeah. So you'll see that, you know, there's a vast majority, uh, 10 to 35% of patients will have EGFR positivity, which is a genetic mutation. If you come to our part of the world, Asia Pacific, it's anywhere between 50 and 60%. So you're talking about an even more filtered population. So if we want to find at the long tail of this genetics, more rarer mutations, which confer an ability either to be resistant to chemotherapy or to have better outcomes, we need to have that large set of data. So that's where uh, from a clinical side, there is that need for big data. But why don't we get access to uh, big data? And that's what I put across is the privacy and the primacy principles, which Dr. Joachim has already alluded to. Privacy, of course, there's personal healthcare information, HIPAA, and all of the other regulations which exist in countries, and they exist with a good right. But there is a primacy principle, right? It is our data. Uh, data has a business value today. And uh, when you control that kind of information, you want to leverage it in the right way. And when you go to the more philanthropic side of the uh, table, which is the physicians, physicians are human beings who are driven by the need for publications, which is the currency in the scientific world. So there is a publication right, which you give away. If you were to give all of your data into a central location, whether it's a cloud or a real server, a part of all of the technical problems that go with sharing all of this data and potential abuse of personally identifiable information you are giving away your publication right? Which is why there is this cartoon that I have where you know, there is a dragon who's holding all of that data, which is all of the official information. So what do we hope to achieve when we get all of this swarm learning done? Uh, we try to get biomarkers. Biomarkers will show us that where disease exists, what are potential outcomes for a patient and whether the patient has progressed before he overtly comes back to us with a relapse in their cancer. We want to also tailor personalized treatment and we want to improve physicians' training by the second reader principle. So what's the value of a swarm learning network? So it works across a data heterogeneity. When you have the artificial learning engine at the site, it's able to consolidate across the data heterogeneity and build its learning algorithm. Uh, when you have a swarm learning as opposed to something which doesn't have the blockchain uh, uh, protection on top of that, you're protecting from nefarious mutations or nefarious uh, individuals either trying to take data or changing the algorithm or the machine learning engine because everything is blockchain governed. And then there's a traceability. So for us, you have to have that manual trace back for our pliers. You find some patients who have done exceedingly differently and maybe when the time when the genomic testing was done, we didn't have the technology to do the right testing which we could do today. So we could trace those patients back. 
There are also revenue or publication models which come back with that traceability. And that's my last slide. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Shetty. I think that's uh, very, very enlightening. Um, we know oncology, <laughs> we're all trying to crack that, that, that incredible disease. Uh, so that sounds really exciting. Um, so Prasad, I think uh, it comes to you now, the technologist, right, to talk about exactly the opportunity with the technology, obviously, um, and all your research and expertise that you've garnered so far with it. Hey, uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me in this one. And it's an honor to uh, participate along with uh, Joachim and Vikram uh, into an IEEE con conference here. So uh, both uh, Dr. Joachim and Dr. Vikram already spoke about uh, several challenges which we face in the machine learning today. There are primarily the categories of challenges they touched upon uh, related to your big data, the efficiency part in terms of dealing with the large amount of data, the transfer, the storage, uh, the computing aspects of it. They did also touch upon another very key aspect, which is the challenges with respect to the privacy uh, and then the, the data sovereignty related aspects. So in the next few minutes, let me just kind of talk about uh, the framework uh, which we are developing at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Uh, we call it as form learning. Many of you might have heard about uh, already the federated learning uh, aspects, uh, which is a mechanism of enabling the distributed or a federated machine learning aspects of it. So when we started looking into this, primarily with the challenges uh, we observed in the space of uh, privacy, and we wanted to look at like, okay, how can we develop a framework which would enable the like-minded participant to come together, collaborate with each other to build a good globalized model wherein which each of the participants will feel they have an equal right in that whole operation. So in another word, we were also trying to look at, as Dr. Joachim said, see whether we can eliminate any central custodian who could orchestrate the learning or the overall process. And we wanted to enable the participant to come and train and share their knowledge with each other while preserving or continue to own the data. So that means the ownership of data is taken at the local level, as well as the protection on their data, which are kind of governed by the the data security and the data protection principles they have on their local sites. So by doing this, we can enable the participant to collaborate and then build a globalized model, which provides a better accuracy and also makes it less susceptible to the biases. Typically we could see if the model is developed just by looking at the local data from one region or one hospital uh, type of things. The concept itself is pretty simple. Instead of move all the data into a central data store and try to train the model, we looked at taking the model itself to where the data originates or to the edge locations, as we call, and train the model there and share the learnings with other participants. Let me just illustrate that with an example. So let's see we have uh, the laboratories uh, or the hospitals spread across and uh, assume like we have five such hospitals, they're coming together to develop a model. Um, I'm picking up on the example which uh, Vikram talked about. Uh, let's say if you are looking at X-ray images to diagnose the lung diseases. At the beginning, these hospital will join the swarm network and then they will also agree upon or receive the skeleton of the model. This is the structure of the model which is developed locally to solve a particular use case. In this case, looking at the X-ray images and diagnosing the lung care or a lung disease. And then all these hospitals, they will start training this model using the data they own. And they do this for a specified period. I would call them as epochs. At the end of the epoch, they have gained some insights or they have learned by training that model on that local data 
which is represented as L uh, here. And at this moment, they will elect one among themselves as a coordinator. And all the other nodes will share their data with the coordinator. And um, apologies, it's not the raw data, it is the learnings they will share with the coordinator. The coordinator merges the learnings from all the other nodes and sends them back. Now the nodes will start the next epoch of training. They will continue the training with these new learnings. They get the new learnings, elect a new leader, send their learnings to that new leader. The new leader merges the, the learning data and sends it back. And this process continues till the model achieves the desired accuracy level. As you can see in this illustration, the entire learning aspect, which is coordinated among themselves without having any central custodian aspect here. So thus we are kind of enabling a fully decentralized machine learning framework to enable the hospitals or the participant nodes to come together and do it. How do we do this? So the key thing it becomes as part of that is having a very robust, a peer-to-peer, fault-tolerant, and dynamically scalable network. And we have leveraged the blockchain technology to implement such a network. We call that as a swarm network. And we primarily use a blockchain to build a good peer-to-peer, fault-tolerant peer-to-peer network. And unlike most of the blockchain use cases where it is being looked at as a tamper-proof ledger, we kind of utilize the blockchain primarily to look at as a control plane operations. So what do we do by that? It's predominantly we use a private permission blockchain network to ensure only the authorized participant can join the network and participate in that overall training. And we use the feature of a smart contracts, uh, which provides a trusted execution environment to execute a contract, to coordinate among the other nodes to elect a leader or a coordinator so that we could eliminate any central custodian or authority to orchestrate that aspect. And then we also utilize the smart contract feature to implement the merging logic. So that is basically to prevent if we have some dishonest members or somebody breaks into your network, joins the network, and to ensure they don't steer the training in the wrong direction by trying to attack the operations on the model. So the merging algorithm is implemented using the smart contract, which provides the protection against the insider attack. And finally, we use a blockchain to as an audit logs also. All the operation which is happening in terms of this decentralized framework, these operations gets logged and then which could be used as an tamper-proof audit records uh, later for the, uh, the governance mechanisms or to look into like what operations happens and who contributed what aspect of it. Quickly turning, so one, that's more about in terms of how we develop the technology. And we wanted to make it very easy for the consumers of this technology Maybe people like uh, the Vikram's team or Joachim teams uh, who are working on developing the machine learning algorithms to solve a specific use cases in this healthcare domain. So we package that whole uh, framework as a container and expose an API to integrate an existing machine learning models uh, which most of the data scientists could start with the local data on their local environment to develop. Uh, to hook that into this swarm learning framework and convert this model as an decentralized machine learning framework. And then we ensure this, uh, since it's packaged as a container and then uh, provide a flexibility to run this all the way from an edge location uh, into a data center or into a cloud environment to make it uh, very easy to deploy and configure and then jumpstart with that one. Just to elaborate a little bit in terms of how simple it is to convert a machine learning model into a swarm learning. So as I just mentioned, we provide 
one single API. We call it as a Swarm callback API. And it's a pretty simple steps of importing that package, defining that API, and passing that API into the callback list. And I'm showing a real example uh, for looking at the X-ray images and trying to identify a lung disease, the work which you have done by utilizing the, the X-ray images from an NIH dataset and also the model which is picked up from the Keras. And as you can see how simple it is, it is just a three lines of changes. So importing of the callback function, defining that callback function and passing it onto your list. So while defining a callback, we do provide certain tunable parameters to adjust the learning process uh, with respect to an accuracy and also the latency aspect of the learning, those things. So in a nutshell, uh, we kind of eliminate any central author custodians or the orchestrator and make it completely decentralized, package it as a containers, provide a simple API to plug it in. With that, for uh, the, the curious or interested uh, audiences, there are a few links which I would like to leave it here to look into in terms of the few videos and uh, we're also providing it is on the, the GitHub uh, for an non-commercial usage. And I'm just flashing out some of those um, links here. Uh, as well as, as uh, Dr. Hakim said, uh, the joint work which we have done together, which is published in the, the Nature magazine uh, earlier this year. With that, I would hand it over back to you, Nadia. Thank you. Thank you so much, Prasad. I think this was really uh, a, a really simple discussion talking about how it works on such a complicated and just technically challenging sort of uh, application. So thank you so much. You actually made it for me easy to understand. So I, I hope our audience appreciates that as well. So we have a few minutes. I would like to ask um, a couple questions to our panel. So we have a few minutes left in our panel uh, discussion. I feel like you've all heard some really great expert level information, but um, we just want to have a few minutes for a discussion. <clears throat> so I'm going to actually pose the first question uh, to Dr. Schultz, but obviously I invite Prasad and Dr. Shetty to also, uh, you know, share their comment and their viewpoints as well. So I think one of the first things that comes to mind is like, what are, Dr. Schultz, some of the technical or policy or application barriers when it relates to transferring significant amounts of data that's, you know, considered private or, you know, uh, IP sensitive or whatever it might be? Um, what are some of the things that you might be, or you've seen already confronted or might see coming down the line when it comes to these types of barriers? Yeah, so um, this is actually a, a general problem in, in medicine. And I think where we have seen it to, um, to materialize these problems is in, in new data spaces, so where people say like, there's much more data in than you can have for the first question. I'll take the example, you know, is uh, all the genomics data, you know, we're, we're slowly entering the area that genomics data will be uh, standard uh, for some patients, you know, in cancer, for example, many countries want to use genomics, genome data now to really understand what is the mutation status of the cancer and so on, and use that for diagnostics and therapy. And of course, there's still a lot of research. Yeah? And in the last 10, 15 years, what we have done is we just uh, tried to send all the data from many, many uh, hospitals to one hospital or to one uh, certain institution that would handle them the data. And it took us very often months. And sometimes, you know, when you go, go across uh, continents, uh, it wasn't even possible to send data because of jurisdiction. You know, we're not just not allowed to send such data out of the country or out of Europe and et cetera. And, and so the, this is one aspect. The other aspect is um, we have um, a continuous flow of data, for example, from some of our sites and other institutions tell me the same. And we're letting them transport by, by truck. You know? So we put them on, on hard drives and then, uh, you know, <clears throat> instead of transferring them electronically, they're, they're, they're sent by hard drives and then they're putting in. So this is, if you see see the, the magnitude of what happens if you have to transfer the primary data and all these bottlenecks that you have. And on top of that, our colleagues, you know, as Vikram told, told us very clearly, is, you know, um, if you generate these data um, and they have, they're so rich that you can answer many, many more questions that you might not have thought of in the first place, it's always sad that you just give them away after you answer the first question. 
in a way that, um, you know, it's, it's good to have open science and so on, but why not being part of the next uh, uh, next questions that are asked in the field? Uh, because it's a lot of effort to produce these data. So I think there's on and a lot of levels is a lot of problems. And this can all be solved if you keep the data where they are and you bring the algorithms to the data. Yeah? So if you really turn this around, everything I, I told you right now is gone. In basically, all these problems are gone in, in, in by one approach, namely turning everything around. And I have to tell you, you know, we were talking about these things three, four, five years ago, and it was very hard to tell anybody. But now I see that many of my colleagues apparently see it like that, you know, while they were talking about centralization and how easy it is to do with all this open and central data. This has dramatically shifted even over the last couple of months. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward that we understand that the data need to be where they are. And then you bring the algorithm to the data and then you join in big teams and decide together how to work together on each individual place's data without sharing them and just sharing the insights. And that's a new way of openness in science. It's not open data, it's open insights. Yeah? And I think that has to be this, this, this mindset has to be changed. Yes, fascinating. I'm glad you said open insights. We do often all get caught up in open data, open source, open APIs, open, but I think that gets to the to the core of what we're trying to achieve. So um, Prasad, what about from, from your point of view, you know, obviously <clears throat> I imagine there's some technical considerations, yeah. policy, things like that, that you're maybe confronting in the work that you're doing. Yes, as um, in terms of a technology, as we really look into an aspect of it, so from the beginning, we wanted to make it as simple as possible. So one is basically developing a framework, but uh, the key thing we always had in the back of our mind when we are doing it is how simple we can make it to an end user to consume. So one of the things, as I said, we provide it as a container aspect of it. The entire framework is packaged, and then the way by leverage the blockchain, we can let it scale seamlessly. And, and then just to draw a point here, like the, uh, it, it, it also provides a mechanism of having a different topologies. Because in today's world, we do talk about a lot of different uh, mechanisms through which we can have this uh, federated or a decentralized training. So one of the things, whenever we refer to federated, probably we do talk about a centralized federation where it's a central server which orchestrates the overall learning process. In this case, when we eliminate that, it's not just looking at a decentralization. So think of an scenarios where in which probably if we need to do a collaborative learning, let's say in a country, uh, say maybe in my country like in India, and then we have a swarm network there. And then we have another setup where in which we have a collaborative learning in Singapore or maybe in a Germany type of things. And then later, if you need to bring all of them together. So it's basically look at a different type of a topologies to expand it easier. That's the one thing we wanted to start, kind of enable it from a beginning to seamlessly scale or support a various different topologies to make it happen. That's kind of uh, try to make it as simple as just provide an uh, IP address and then kind of a port to say like, okay, where do you want to connect and then leave the entire aspect of taking care of this uh, setup into the framework part of it. And then, Look at an aspect of a data scientist. Uh, we all know, like, that, okay, the, uh, as a data scientist myself, so would like to really look at into the data, which probably what I can get on my laptop and then start developing a model there, working offline with my laptop. And we wanted to let them continue in that fashion, so have that focus in terms of developing that models. Once they are comfortable with that model, and then we wanted to just seamlessly enable them to kind of get access into a wide amount of data as both Joachim and Vikram talked about, uh, these models need very large amount of data to train it to provide the good accuracy level. So we can enable them seamlessly to get access into a lot of data just by making a very simple API change to call into that. So that's kind of what we are looking at more in terms of the aspect of a technology aspect. And then I think you did touch upon a little bit in terms of the, the, the governance or the privacy related aspects. So we are kind of enabling to plug these things into the standard security frameworks uh, along with the blockchain to ensure uh, it could be connected into a standard IAM 
tools to ensure you provide a proper identity and the authorization mechanism for the people to participate as well as look into like the okay, who can play what type of a role in the framework and those things so try to provide that integration and enable logging all that information so that um, it becomes a little bit easier to look at that from a regulatory perspective thank you yes uh, many many challenges i think just once you mentioned the term health data. <laughs> so um, Dr. Shetty, I mean, you are obviously living in a highly competitive, uh, highly regulatory organization. Obviously, the pharmaceutical industry, everybody knows it's always the race to find the next best therapeutic. Um, so from your point of view, what do you see, like, for instance, as well, like maybe, uh, could it be policy barriers, you know, you think about regulatory bodies, or is it just the idea of this open data, open insights, you know, sharing the, trying to get access to the information, like, what are some of the things that you see are some, you know, potential barriers and, you know, we have to sort of watch out for them. Okay, from a standpoint of the pharmaceutical industry, there is uh, the, the, some of the barriers that exist really are those which are alluded by Prasad and uh, Joachim already. Uh, a lot of the data that exists and there's a lot of move towards getting nationwide genomics parameters or platforms already happened in Sweden, UK, Singapore, and our access to that data tends to be really limited, okay? So our expertise for certain things such as genomics sits in the central mothership, whereas this data now sits at dispatriate countries across the globe, every four corners. It's very challenging for us to get our talent to come to individual countries and you know have such highly skilled and trained talents to come there to do data analytics, even we're not even talking about consolidating the data together. Uh, and so from that perspective, uh, those regulations really are uh, a little limited. Uh, from a pharmaceutical industry standpoint, I must say that, you know, and also as a physician, I must say that I believe in the value of keeping personally identifiable information, personal data very private. Uh, I believe that's a basic human right. Uh, but a part of that, there also ha it has to be this need where one needs to be able to uh, contribute to the deliverance of science. Uh, a part of that, I also see that there is a sea change in the world, right? So as pharmaceutical industries, we all hold a lot of data. And, uh, you know, that's proprietary, right? That's uh, what our investors invest in us for. And that's why uh, we try to keep ahead of the game. But there also is this cognizance that, you know, with the wealth of data that there is, it's probably not going to work for human good unless we have that ability to share that data in a very collaborative manner while maintaining our integrity and our uh, uh, ownership of some of the data which we find very integral and internal to the organization. Uh, one of the good examples that I can give you for this is the Melody Project, which is machine learning for orchestrating drug development, which looks across uh, data sets within very good companies. You, they've got a list of about 10 organizations that are contributing to this. So there is a definite move there is uh, to, to overcome all of this using swarm learning and federated learning and blockchain technology. So we're trying to get that. Our aspects go beyond genomics and beyond drug delivery, even in the conduct of clinical trials, there is a lot to be gained from swarm learning and federated learning, right? So uh, our ability to share data, our ability to keep the data and also keep iterations of the data in a very robust manner now depends very highly on the blockchain technology. We want to have that ability to leverage on that. So yeah, that, that would be a few of the constrictions that we have in uh, pharmaceuticals. Yes. Wow, uh, I think, um, I feel like we could have this session take up the whole day at uh, the Converge to Accelerate Symposium. I think there's so many, you know, questions. I'm sure our audience has questions, but unfortunately, I think I have to wrap it up for today. I think you all gave some really great closing comments. Um, you know, we see the opportunity, but yet we have to keep understanding that they are, this is new. And so we're going to work through these challenges and figure it out um, together. So um, I want to definitely just share with you all before I wrap up and thank our panelists for being here, um, is that, uh, you know, we do quite a bit of work at the IEEE essay. I mentioned to you some incubator programs. We're doing one on telehealth for those who are interested. We're really getting to the issue of, you know, sustainable connectivity, accessibility, privacy, and security for all. As you 
imagine major challenges? Where can the use of standards conformity assessment um, really help in addressing that issue? And simultaneously, we have another incubator program which aligns to some of the work we're talking about here um, on tech and data harmonization for decentralized clinical trials. We already had two standards come out of this particular project. We're really, you know, with the pandemic, uh, you want to call it one of the benefits or consequences, depending how you look at it, was this rush to this uh, ability to use decentralized clinical trials, a means of continuing trials, you know, with the ability to have data provenance and, you know, verification, validation. Um, so they're going through all these different ideas with the D, um, digital uh, health toolkits. Um, so if this is something of interest, we invite you to come join us. Um, and well, we also have a competition. If anybody has a great idea on how to solve any of the challenges that I mentioned on accessibility, security, connectivity in the world of um, remote patient monitoring, um, please uh, join us and submit your idea. We do many different sessions, such as like one like here. We did Swarm AI originally as an IEEE SA uh, webinar where we introduced the idea here. We've taken it to the next level. Um, we do many of these things in the form of outreach because we want to bring volunteers, experts uh, such as Prasad and uh, Yakum and Dr. Shetty to bring their ideas, bring their expertise and figure out where we can develop solutions. And we do this in the form of outreach and educating on what the challenge is. And then hopefully they want to get involved and say, hey, we want to help solve it or find out what might be the next best thing. So if anybody's interested in learning more about all the work we do here at the IEEE-SA Healthcare Life Sciences, or you have any questions about what we talked about today on the panel, please do not hesitate to, to reach out to me. I want to thank you, Dr. Schultz, uh, Prasad, and Dr. Shetty for your time, your expertise, your continued dedication uh, to helping to solve and have better patient outcomes and for being a part of this panel. <clears throat> okay, and to you all, I wish you all to continue to stay safe and well, and I hope you're enjoying uh, the conference and we look forward to hopefully you joining one of our sessions in the future or just becoming part of our community of problem solvers. Take care. <laughs>